Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What are you waiting for? Come on in. This podcast may contain graphic content and strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, Honda. Hello, Mary. How are you? Well, I'm pretty fantastic. I know. How are you? Pretty fantastic. Yeah? Guess what? We're like the double mint twins. Someone's a whole year older than the last time we talked. Yeah, been a whole year older. Mm, yeah. Only for a couple of days. Yeah. Only for a couple of days. So, for our listeners who may have missed out on this, Mary had a birthday a few days ago. Back in October. She's lying. (laughs) And she is a fabulous 30 in holding. Thank you. Holding it all together, a little duct tape here, a little glue there, a little staples here. Some mom spit. Mom spit. Mm Mm-hmm. Plaster Paris. Chewing gum that you found on the sidewalk. Hell yeah. Anything that works. Hell yeah, you know it. Well, here's to a whole nother year. Thanks. Hell yeah. I hope that your next year is just as amazing as the last couple have been. Working on it. Good. This drink is helping. Hell yeah. Welcome to Murder Mission in Moscato, everybody. Woohoo! Thanks for hanging with us. And the birthday girl is? I'm Mary Swartz. <laughs> and I'm Hannah Green. And today... I was trying to figure out who the birthday girl was. <laughs> <laughs> the birthday girl is 30 and has early onset Alzheimer's. It's all good. Um, today, today, Mary, we are celebrating your birthday with something amazing in our glasses. When do we ever not have something amazing in our glass, though, honestly? Honestly, really, that we have on air. Well, I was going to say, there have been a few times we've stopped recording, just dump out what was in our glasses and start over. That's right. We don't talk about it either. No, no, <laughs> no. Mm-mm. No, this one's so easy to drink. It's like, I can just picture myself with a thermos on the beach, somewhere warm. I don't know. I'm thinking like sand, beach, beautiful blue water, an attractive Sunshine. man bringing me these drinks on command. No, that's not a bad thought at all either, but thermos isn't bad either. You don't have to wait that way. Um, If he's any good at his job, I don't have to wait either. Okay. All right, we'll go with that. So today we are drinking a drink that I made up. It really just doesn't even have a name. Oh, God. It is a tropical cranberry juice blend. Yes. Mixed with 
Malibu strawberry rum. Yes. And fresh pineapple. Like, while I was putting the ingredients together, Mary was cutting us a fresh pineapple. And doing lines of juice off the cutting board. (laughs) Yes. I just put it all together in a shaker with some ice, shook it, strained it. Dumped the fresh so pineapple in with the glass with it. It's, yeah, it's easy. It's oh. easy to make. It's easy to drink. De-freaking-licious. Mm-hmm. And you could actually substitute probably quite a few different rums in here. Oh, yeah, because it would bend great in, with almost any of the rums we have. Yeah, and the fresh pineapple. Oh, my God, that pineapple's so sweet. Yes. So good. Oh, yeah. You know, you know when you're drinking the juice whether it's going to be good or not. Yeah, when you look up and your sister's doing lines of juice with a straw off of the cutting board. <laughs> going, hey. did you do a line yet? Hey, I shared my line with you. <laughs> I know, it was great. And this is why we do not videotape ourselves. We should. Oh, Lord. All right. Mary, do you have a murder birthday for us today? I do. Douchebag of the day. Douchebag of the day. Charles Carl Roberts the Fourth. First of all, his parents are kind of douchey for naming him that. Charles Carl Roberts? Yes. The fourth? Yes. And and the three that came before him, I offer you my condolences. Okay. With a a stuck-up, snooty-sounding name like that, how can you not be a douchebag? Let's just be honest. All right. He was born in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Oh. To the people that knew him as he grew up and, you know, went on in his adult life. Um, he was a soccer dad. Quiet, hardworking, church-going, family man. In 1990, he worked at it as a dishwasher at Good and Plenty Restaurant in Smoketown, Pennsylvania. Now, at that point in time, you have to pay attention to this one. Two of his co-workers were named Lawrence Yunkin and Lisa Michelle Lambert. Hmm. Okay? Okay. Both of whom would be convicted in the 1991 murder of 16-year-old Lori Show in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Interesting. Yes. Now, in 2006, Roberts was a commercial milk tank driver. He was employed by Northwest Foods. Okay. October 2nd, 2006. Roberts entered the one-room West Nickel Mines School at approximately 9.51 a.m. with a 9mm handgun. Oh, Jesus. This cannot possibly go anywhere. A 12-gauge shotgun. Oh, my God. A 30-06 bolt-action rifle. About 600 rounds of ammunition. Cans of black powder, stun gun, two knives, change of clothes, truss board in a box containing a hammer, hacksaw, pliers, wire, screws, bolts, tape, and KY jelly. I feel like one of these might be made up. Nope. Nope. Was there any powdered uranium? (laughs) No, he didn't. He had no use for that. Was there a rattlesnake? A copperhead? Was there any... In a tote bag on the front seat. Was there any bourbon? Anyway, he used 2x6 and 2x4 boards um, to barricade the school doors. And then he tied the arms and legs of the hostages he planned on keeping. He ordered the hostages to line up against the chalkboard. He he tied the the arms and legs? Yes. So, I mean, you're going to be, like... Hobbling. Hobbling. He ordered the hostages to line up against the chalkboard. He allowed the 15 male students to go. Oh, Jesus. He allowed the pregnant woman to go and three parents who had infants to go. He allowed them out of the building. The remaining 10 female students he kept inside the schoolhouse. 
Now, as soon as she got out, the school teacher contacted the police, and the police officers took about nine minutes to get there. Now, I don't know the distance, right. but I am sure that they got there quick. We're talking the school. They attempted to communicate. He did not want to communicate with them. When they started hearing shots fired, they broke in through the windows. Roberts killed himself along with five schoolgirls. He actually shot every girl in that room. Every girl in that room. But five of them survived. Five of them survived. Yes. They were shot execution style in the head, ages 6 to 13. Jesus. Yes. Now, Robert's wife last saw him at 8.45 in the morning when they took their children to the bus stop. His wife went home. I don't know. His wife must have something to do. Uh, when she returned back to their home, she found four notes that he had left her and the children. So his kids didn't attend this school that no. he went to? No. Okay. He reportedly contacted his wife while he was in the schoolhouse, and he told her that he had molested two young female relatives between the ages of three and five. Oh, my God. 20 years previously, when he would have been about the age of 12. He wasn't, I mean, and he said he had been thinking about doing it again. Right. So instead of getting help, this is, this is his answer. Kill the girls? I don't understand his chain of thinking, honestly. Uh, he left a suicide note saying he was angry at God. This was an Amish community that it happened in. Right. Okay. I knew that Lancaster is primarily Amish. So the, although the Amish community grieved very deeply about the incident, and they were certainly very shocked about the tragedy, they also believed that it's right to forgive. An Amish neighbor actually went to the Roberts' home and helped comfort the family after the tragedy. That is... And extended forgiveness to them. Well, here's it's the huge. thing. A, it's huge, but B... They are not responsible for his actions. You're right. You are absolutely right. But, but I in also... your heart, if this happened to you, mm-hmm. if it happened to Aurora, I you know, would really struggle to find forgiveness for a long time. Well, and I think that if someone in your own family did this, that you might struggle with not blaming <clears throat> yourself, wondering what you could have done differently yes. or what you missed. Yes. And that's one of the things that, you know, I know we've touched on it before. Yes. So dozens of the Amish neighbors attended his funeral. The schoolhouse was torn down 11 days after the tragedy. They have since rebuilt there. And I read a lot. I mean, there's a lot to this story. And uh, even today, students who walk down the lane, because it is, I mean, there's a lot of dirt roads and stuff. Right. Um, we'll stop in front of the school, even though it's not the same building, and they will still say a prayer. <clears throat> now, because this is a school shooting, the fatalities were Naomi Rose Ebersall. She was seven. Marion Fisher, 13. Anna Mae Stolhus, age 12. Lena Zook Miller, age seven. And Mary Liz Miller, age eight. Sounds like they, they were sisters. The five girls that survived were Rosanna King. She was six. Wow. Now, Rosanna King at the time was so injured, um, <clears throat> she couldn't walk, she couldn't talk, and she still has seizures to this day. I didn't really find out much more about her physical condition. Right. And then I didn't want to intrude. No. Um, Rachel Ann Stolhouse was eight. Barbara Stolhouse, who was ten. Twelve-year-old Sarah Stolhouse, so it sounded like the whole family was there. Jeez. And 13-year-old Esther King. Rosanna's sister. I can't even imagine. 
So happy on birthday to this fuckwad who should have stuck with simply taking the coward's way out instead of ruining the lives of an entire community. Yeah. I'm really glad that the community was stronger than he is, than he was, because this could have totally destroyed them forever. And instead, it sounds like this community gathered together, stuck together, grieved together, handled it together. And, and for them to open their arms and embrace yeah. his family yeah. and to help them and reach out to them, it's really pretty amazing. Um, the Amish, in my experience, and even, you know, with you, the Amish are an amazing community oh, yes. of people. Oh, my gosh. Hardworking, honest, they're just amazing, amazing people. We could learn a lot from them. Yeah, and, and it's... <clears throat> Like every community, like every population, there are, if you want to go looking, there are stories that will break your heart. Yeah. But, yes, for the most part, the Amish community could teach us all a lot. Yes. Yeah. All right. On this day, today is December 7th. So before I do this, my official on this day, I do feel like we need to acknowledge that Today is the day of the attack on Pearl Harbor. A lot of lives were lost. Yeah. A lot of, of lives were changed. It doesn't go without remembrance and notice and honor in our own hearts. So, okay. My official on this day is going to take us way, way, way back. 1787. Ooh, hell yeah. I went way back. <laughs> I think about that for me. Yeah, we're going way back. Yes, we are. 250, 250 years. Delaware became the first state to ratify the U.S. Constitution. Ooh. Go Delaware. The very first nice. U.S. state to ratify the Constitution. So, 200, nice. yeah, 200 and... 45 or 55 years ago. Oh, my God. I think it's 35. Okay. It could be. I don't know, but now I feel like I need to check. <laughs> 45? 235. 35. Okay. 235 years ago. That's a pretty big deal. Pretty All right. amazing. All right. All right. Another one bites the dust? I have a How Stupid Can You Be All right. Let's have a How Stupid Can You Be. I love those. I saw this and I thought. How Stupid Can You Be? This is so perfect for that. Oh, part. my God. The headline reads, Man seen dancing on top of an 18-wheeler dies when it passes under freeway overpass oh, in Houston. for God's sakes. Now... I'm going to assume the driver didn't know he was there. Nope. The driver of the 18-wheeler didn't know the man was up there dancing and possibly filming himself. Can you imagine being the driver? Yeah. Do you even know he came off the the top of your 18-wheeler? I mean, that is insane. He was a 25-year-old. Not anymore. He uh, jumped or climbed up on top of the truck's trailer as it traveled down the freeway. Now, mind you, this happened in November. So, this wasn't even a month ago. It was like three weeks ago that this happened. The driver was not aware that someone was on top of his truck. And um, the man fell off the trailer and onto the freeway when the truck passed under an overpass. Duh! Footage taken of the man was shared on social media. Oh, God. In one clip, he appeared to duck underneath a freeway overpass before standing to his feet a second later. And then the clip cuts off before the truck reaches the next overpass. Probably a good thing. People who witnessed it did comment on Facebook about it. I can't even. And um, 
They can't even imagine. Apparently it happened in the morning. One person said, yeah, I saw blah, 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 blah. It was a horrible way to start my day. Uh, yeah. Um, Jesus Christ, yeah. How stupid can you be? And apparently everyone who saw it was, A, traumatized and could only yeah. think, why? Yeah, apparently mm. there were cars behind the truck when it happened. God. Yeah. I hope uh, somebody he called 911 before that even happened. I, I, mean. I don't know, but um, the man was actually taken to a local hospital where he was pronounced dead. The yes. driver yeah. of the 18-wheeler was stopped and questioned by the police, but was released without charges. So based on that, I am assuming... Yeah, he probably didn't even know. He had no idea. And can you imagine how horrible he feels now? I don't know how, even knowing it's not your fault... How, how do you get behind the wheel of your truck and drive again without being completely paranoid? No kidding. That's insane. Yeah. Just blew my mind when I read this. Wow. I thought, are you are you fucking kidding me? That's crazy. The things that people do for like Instagram and TikTok and YouTube videos trying to go viral, many of them are not safe. Yeah. You just, yeah, you might as well never. Yeah. Is going viral and the potential of making a small amount of money worth risking your life. Honestly. Not for me. Not to mention the trauma that you are subjecting other people to. People like that don't consider other people around them. They don't. It just blows my mind. Yeah. All right. Well, this one gets her name back. On June 3rd of 1994, a trucker was driving down California State Route 152 which is locally known as Pachico Pass. When he saw the body of an unidentified woman, the body eventually became known as Blue Pachico because of the color of clothing she was wearing. Okay. So obviously she was unidentified. They had no idea who she was. Which is sad. That same year, the Oregonian received an anonymous letter from an alleged serial killer confessing to a serial killer of murders. The smiley face drawn on this and subsequent notes led the culprit to be dubbed the Happy Face Killer. Right. And I've heard of him. In the following year, Keith Hunter Jesperson was identified as a serial killer after he confessed while being questioned about the murder of his girlfriend. I actually think I covered him for my murder birthday one year. One, I think you did. Time. Now, Jesperson hadn't mentioned Blue Pacheco, but in 2006... He wrote a letter to Santa Clara County District Attorney's Office saying he had killed a woman along Highway 152. Jesperson eventually pled guilty to killing Blue Pacheco, but he said he did not know her name. So even in 2006. Right. 16 years later, on April 13th of 2022, the DNA Doe Project announced that they had verified Blue Pacheco's true identity to be that of Patricia Skipple a 45-year-old mother who had gone missing from her small rural town of Colton, Oregon. She had been one of three unidentified victims of Jesperson. So Patricia Skipple has her name back, and her family has their daughter, their mother, their wife back. Yeah. And hopefully some answers and hopefully some closure. Yeah. As much as I hate that phrase... Yeah, because I, I doubt it's going to be closure, but you at least have some answers. Yeah. You you at least have a body to bury. You at least have something. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you can really call it, it closure. Yeah. But yes, at least they have 
They have some answers. They have a body to bury. They can say their their goodbyes properly. Yeah. Yeah. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You have a story for us, Hannah? I, I, I do. Wonderful. All right, you ready? Yep. It's kind of interesting because without intending to, <clears throat> the beginning of my story also kind of ties into my How Stupid Can You Be? Oh. I the, don't know if that's good or bad because that dude was stupid. The reality is that things are rarely as they appear from the outside. The world we live in, largely, is a great illusion. Most of us allow the world to only see the things we want them to see. Allow them to believe only what we want them to believe. We allow the world to know the version of them that we want them to accept. Sometimes we do this to protect ourselves from the abuse that society perceives to be perfectly acceptable, as long as it isn't directed toward them. Yeah. And sometimes we do it because we believe that we aren't enough the way we really are. So we build ourselves up to be someone else entirely. Social media is a perfect example of seeing is believing, but you should rarely believe everything that you see. Albert Snyder was somewhat of an enigma of a man from what I could find. He was an editor at Motor Boating Magazine. Don't even... (laughs) Motorboat! Motorboat, motorboat, go so slow. (laughs) Oh... You remember that? Let's just move on, all right? (laughs) Okay. At one point in time, Albert had been engaged to a woman by the name of Jessie Gouchard. The reports of what became of this relationship vary, depending on the source you choose to believe. Now, many reports say that Jessie died. Other reports claim that Jessie never left Albert's life at all. I'm going to tell this story with the most common belief. Jessie died. When someone we love dies, life goes on whether we want it to or not. The loss of someone we love shapes our future, even if we aren't consciously aware of it. The loss of Jesse shaped Albert's future. Of that, there seems to be little doubt. Albert moved on the best he could. It doesn't sound as though it was easy, but like most of us, he did. Ten years after Jesse passed, in 1915, Albert got married. His bride was born Ruth May Brown. She was tall, with blonde hair, good looks, a solid frame, and a commanding personality. Albert may have married Ruth, but from all accounts, he never really loved her. Not the way she needed him to. You see, reports say that Albert insisted on hanging Jesse's photograph on the wall of the home that he and Ruth were living in as newlyweds. He would even go on to name his boat after Jesse. And at some point, Albert even informed Ruth that Jessie was the finest woman he had ever met. As a young, hopeful wife, I am sure that all of these things were unbelievably painful for Ruth to endure. Of course, most of the story is a case of, she said, and media reports. I can't say how much of the details are honest and how many of them were fabricated. Because, 
This was more than 100 years ago, so we can't exactly speak to any of the witnesses. Ruth and Albert added a daughter to the family, Lorraine, born in 1918. Ruth was a housewife and a mother, and Ruth was bored. Ruth began to entertain other men while her husband was away all day at his job. Not just a man, or even a few men. A lot of men. All the men? A lot of the men. (laughs) She must have been pretty good at it, because Albert never seemed any wiser as to his wife's extramarital activities. Oh my god. Or maybe Albert was too busy pining for his lost love to care. We'll never really know. Now in 1925, ten years after they got married, while having lunch out one day, Ruth met a new gentleman, if you can call him that. His name was Henry Judd Gray, although it seems he may have just gone by Judd. Judd was a married corset salesman. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Mary? We got the Motorboat Magazine editor. (laughs) Yep. We got a corset salesman. (laughs) Yep. He wasn't what most women would consider attractive. He was short, with a cleft chin, thick glasses, and a perpetually surprised look upon his face. Sorry, we're over here making faces. I'm surprised at each other now. Insert surprise look here. (laughs) Right? He was seemingly forgettable in every way. Every way, except for one, that is, to Ruth Snyder. You see, there was intense sexual tension between Judd and Ruth from the moment they met. And Ruth, as we know, was always open for for some extra male attention. He's checking her corset. Sure, that's right. (laughs) From the moment that the two began their affair, it seemed as though they couldn't stay away from each other. They couldn't get enough. They would meet at the Snyder's family home during the day while Albert was at work and Lorraine was at school. They would meet at hotels where Ruth would bring Lorraine with her to make the meeting seem respectable. She would leave Lorraine in the lobby of the hotel while Ruth and Judd would sneak off upstairs to indulge in their illicit passion. The two of them would speak and baby talk to each other, and they tended to refer to Ruth as Momsy. This is getting creepy. Not long after the pair began their torrid affair, Ruth began to tell Judd about her home life. It wasn't good, she told him. In fact, it was truly pretty awful. Along with having the memory of Jesse constantly thrown at her, Albert blamed Ruth for giving him a daughter instead of the son that he had expected. Ooh, whose fault is that? Well, this is, you know, 1900, so... Ruth said that Albert demanded a perfect house, and if he found fault with anything, he would physically assault both Ruth and Lorraine. The talk turned, taking on a more sinister tone. Ruth told Judd Albert needed to die. Of course he did. Judd? Well, this wasn't exactly his scene. He hadn't been looking to kill someone. He had just been looking for some afternoon delight. Ruth was persistent in her demands, becoming even more insistent that Albert needed to die. Judd was reluctant. Judd was scared. Judd wanted to keep Ruth, but he didn't want to kill anyone. Kind of rooting for Judd at this point in time, okay? Judd began to drink. Now, this was during Prohibition. Drinking in itself was a risky choice, but the more Ruth insisted that Albert needed to die, the more Judd drank. Soon, Judd was drinking every single day just to cope with the dark and dangerous alley that his life was now hanging out in. 
Ruth and Judd were now spending a lot of time together, not just at her home and not just in hotels. They were openly going out to nightclubs and speakeasies together. The more time they spent together, the more Ruth pushed. Judd couldn't bring himself to tell her no, and he didn't want to cut her out of his life. So the pair began to form a plan. Saturday, March 19th, 1927, was a cold, gray, miserable day. It may have been the day before the beginning of spring, but, the, but apparently Mother Nature had not received the memo, as is frequently the case. No freaking doubt. Judd spent most of the day drinking. As was frequently the case. Yep, exactly. It seemed to be the only way that he could face the life his choices had left him. Judd took the train from Syracuse to New York City. From there, he took a bus to Long Island. He spent an hour walking to the Snyder home, openly drinking from his flask as he walked along the road. Perhaps Judd was hoping that he would get arrested, giving him an easy out from the events he knew awaited. But no one seemed inclined to save Judd from his lack of a backbone. The Snyder home was empty. No one was there. The family was out for the evening, attending a party. Judd slipped into the house through the back door and he made his way to a spare bedroom where Ruth had thoughtfully left him the items that he would need. There, laid out for him, were gloves, chloroform, and a window sash weight. Judd stayed there, drunk, silent, and scared out of his mind, waiting for the family to return home. Around 2 a.m., the family did come home, quickly turning in for the night. It was late. After tucking her daughter into bed, Ruth stuck her head into the spare room, quietly calling out to Judd, checking to make sure that he was indeed there. And about an hour later, Ruth returned to the spare bedroom, wearing next to nothing. Judd and Ruth, well, they did what they always did. They had sex in the spare room with her husband and her daughter right down the hall. And when it was over, Ruth handed the gloves and the window weight to Judd and then taking him by the hand, Ruth led Judd to the master bedroom. Each of them stood on opposite sides of the bed, staring at each other. Albert lay asleep with the covers pulled up over his head. At Ruth's frantic insistence, Judd brought the weight down onto Albert's head. Judd, however, was short. He was scared, he was drunk, and he was probably not all that well coordinated. <laughs> probably not. So, <clears throat> The weight merely glanced off of Albert's head, awakening him and pissing him off. No fucking doubt. Albert sat up, yelling and grabbing out for Judd. Judd dropped the weight and screamed out. It's reported that he screamed, Momsy, Momsy, for God's sake, help! Ruth, well, she was angry, and she was disgusted by her spineless lover. She grabbed the weight and she swung it crashing it down onto Albert's head, again and again, until he was no longer moving. He wasn't dead, simply unconscious, and most likely grievously injured. Judd and Ruth proceeded to stuff chloroform-soaked chloroform rags up Albert's nostrils. And then a picture frame wire was wrapped around his neck and twisted. And now there was no doubt. Albert was dead. Ruth was seemingly not at all disturbed by the events that had led to her husband's death. 
even with her daughter right there, just down the hall. Instead, Ruth and Judd went downstairs, had a few drinks, and talked about what the next steps should be. They ransacked the house, tipping things over, pulling out drawers. They took the money from Albert's wallet, and they hid Ruth's jewelry. Next, Ruth told Judd to tie her up, but not too tightly, in the hallway upstairs before he left. Now, with Ruth tied up, lying on the hallway floor, Judd walked out of the Snyder home. I can't even try to guess what was going through his head at this point. But I don't think there's going to be enough alcohol in the state to make it feel better. I would agree with you. Judd headed to the nearby bus stop. He even asked the police officer when the next bus would be along. After getting off the bus, Judd took a taxi to Manhattan. He didn't want to look suspicious, so he tipped the cabbie. Then he took the train to Syracuse, where he had a hotel room. Meanwhile, Ruth banged on Lorraine's door, waking her up. Ruth instructed her to run to the neighbors for help, and Lorraine did just that. The neighbor summoned the police. Ruth told the police that two giant Italians had broken into their home, awakening her from her sleep. She told them that the Italians had tied her up and knocked her out. She told the police that the house had been robbed. Her husband had been murdered. Ruth wasn't that good of an actress, though. The, Ru the police did not believe her story almost from the start. She wasn't acting like someone who had been knocked out. In fact, she looked fine. She didn't look or act like someone whose husband had been brutally, horrifically murdered. She didn't seem like a concerned mother for her daughter. And it only went downhill from there. The police, of course, searched the home. Things definitely did not add up. And then they found her stolen jewelry. It was stuffed under her own mattress. Jesus Christ. It didn't take long before the police found papers with the initials J.G. on them. When they asked Ruth about the papers, she immediately pointed the finger at Judd Gray. She asked the police what Judd Gray would have to do with the murder of her husband. The papers, in reality were a reference to Jesse, the dead fiancé. Oops! Then the police found Ruth's address book, where they found not only Judd's name and information, but that of at least 28 other men. Jesus, criminy, she's a busy woman. So much for the devoted and grieving wife. The police found a revolver on the bed and three bullets on the floor next to the bed. But he hadn't been shot. Nope. The police found a tie clip on the floor with H-J-G on it. And then the police found a check in Ruth's desk made out to Judd Gray for $200. Well, nice to know that he dressed appropriately for this. And the police knew they needed to find Judd. Judd was tracked down to the hotel in Syracuse. When the police arrived there to speak with him, Judd claimed that he hadn't been anywhere near the Snyder home but had in fact been there in Syracuse all evening. Too bad Judd left the train ticket stub in plain sight in the garbage there in the hotel room. <laughs> and with that... <laughs> okay. Not the smartest criminals in the world here, okay? <laughs> we'll just call it karmic relief night. <laughs> and with that, Judd was taken in for questioning. <clears throat> Ruth was told that the police had Judd in custody. They told Ruth that Judd had confessed to everything and that he was blaming her for all of it. Ruth quickly confessed, laying all the blame on Judd. Judd had, in fact, not confessed to anything at all. Once the police told him that Ruth had confessed and was blaming it all on him, 
Judd actually did confess. And he, of course, claimed Ruth was responsible for everything that had happened. The two of them were arrested, and they were charged with the murder of Albert Snyder. While awaiting trial, Judd regularly spoke to the tabloids. He claimed that Ruth had seduced him and planned the murder herself. He was simply another one of her victims. A tabloid war of, start, of sorts began. The Daily Graphic, the Daily News, and the Daily Mirror were all printing stories about the murder and the love affair as quickly as they could concoct them. The tabloids used lurid details of little relevance and often of little truth to lure in as many readers as possible. Oh, kind of like the tabloids do today. Yes. Not much has changed. Yes. They simply wanted to outsell each other. The truth was the last concern. Yeah. Ruth was described as a synthetic blonde murderess, a vampire wife, Ruthless Ruth, the Viking ice matron of Queen's Village. And the pair was dubbed the Granite Woman and the Putty Man. Jesus Christ, me. The trial quickly began. Things moved through the court system a whole lot faster back then than they do today. Oh, God, yeah. The trial was tabloid nirvana. No kidding. Lurid headlines galore. The case was described as a cheap crime involving cheap people. The defendants were described as inept idiots. Well, that's not far from the truth, Can't is it? Argue that point. <clears throat> the courtroom was packed with 1,500 spectators. Where is this courtroom? In an arena? New York. I still Queens. Can't. It's like New York City. It's like Queens, you know? Another 2,000 more spectators were gathered outside the courthouse. Oh, my God. Souvenir vendors sold stick pins featuring an image of a window sash weighed on it for 10 cents. God. It came out that there were several life insurance policies on Albert. At some point during the marriage, Albert had, of course, purchased life insurance. There's nothing abnormal or suspicious about that. Nope. It's the responsible thing for a husband to do when he is the breadwinner with a wife and a child at home. But Albert had only ever taken out a single policy. During the trial, Jed described his affair with Ruth. Now this is a direct quote. She would place her face an inch from mine and look deeply into my eyes until I was completely hers. While she hypnotized my mind with her eyes, she would gain control over my body by slapping my cheeks with the palms of her hands. Judd claimed that Ruth had made at least seven, seven separate attempts on Albert's life prior to the night of the murder. He told the court she had tried knockout drops. Twice, she had disconnected the gas inside the home while Albert slept. She had locked him in the garage while the car was running. She had given Albert poison to cure his hiccups. Judd blamed Ruth for the blow that knocked Albert out, as well as for twisting the wire around Albert's neck. While Judd's elderly mother looked on, Judd's lawyers described him as the most tragic story that has ever gripped the human heart. They claimed that Judd was a law-abiding citizen, a good man who had been duped by a designing, deadly, conscienceless, abnormal woman, a human serpent, a human fiend in the disguise of a woman. Ruth's lawyers, of course, blamed Albert for perpetuating a loveless marriage, tainted by the memory of his beloved Jesse, 
appeared that they were saying it's Albert's own fault that he was murdered. They claimed that Albert had tempted Ruth into murder with his abuse, as well as his purchase of life insurance. Her lawyers claimed that Ruth was a good Christian wife and mother. With 29 friends? (laughs) They got glossed completely over the multitude of affairs. Ruth justified the affair with Judd because Judd was also not happy at home. She claimed that Judd had forced her to go to all of those clubs and speakeasies. She claimed that she never smoked and she rarely ever drank herself. And she told the court that Judd gave her poison and insisted that she administer it to Albert. It was discovered that two of the life insurance policies were in fact forged. Ruth claimed that I'm they, shocked. Yeah, right? Ruth claimed that they were obtained and forged upon Judd's insistence. The insurance agent who helped Ruth obtain the policies would eventually be fired and sent to prison for forgery. Wow. The pair were tried together. The jury deliberated for 98 minutes. It's all it took for them to find both Ruth and Judd guilty for the murder of Albert. They were both sentenced to death, and they both seemed surprised. Surprise, surprised face. Well, there Albert it is again. <laughs> I was going to say, well, Judd always looks surprised, so it's hard to know if he was. There was a contentious custody battle for Lorraine. The daughter? Between who? <clears throat> Between Ruth's family and Albert's family. In the end, Lorraine was placed in a Catholic institution by her maternal grandmother. The one life insurance policy which Albert had purchased for $30,000 was paid out to the family. The other two insurance policies were denied by the insurance company for reasons of fraud. Right. And the insurance company filed lawsuits to make it legally binding. Good. Good for that. On January 13th, 1928, at Sing Sing Penitentiary, Judd was executed in the electric chair. He had spent the day before his execution reading the Bible. He told the warden that he was at peace because he had received a letter from his wife forgiving him. When oh, his ex- I forgot our corset salesman was married. Yeah. I forgot that part. When his execution was finished, Judd's feet had caught on fire. The execution had not been done correctly, and he probably suffered more than he expected to. Not cool. Ten not minutes... Not cool. Ten minutes after Judd was executed, Ruth was also executed, also at Sing Sing. <clears throat> Did that one go appropriately? In fact, Ruth watched the lights flicker as Judd was being put to death while they were preparing her for the electric chair. Unlike Judd, Ruth had not found peace while awaiting her execution. She spent her last day screaming and swearing and beating the bars of her cell. Ruth requested that Lorraine not be brought to the prison for a final visit but did leave her a sealed letter for when she was old enough to understand. Ruth was the first woman to be executed at Sing Sing in more than 28 years. Ruth was buried in Woodlawn Cemetery with a headstone that simply reads, May R. Now remember, May was her middle name. Died 1-13-1928. Judd was buried in Rosedale Cemetery, New Jersey. In 1928, cameras were not allowed into the death chamber. A reporter for the Daily News tabloid, however, snuck in a small camera strapped to his ankle. As the switch was flipped and Ruth was executed, 
the photographer got off one shot, which can still be seen online today. The black and white photo is a slightly blurry shot of Ruth's shaking body strapped to the chair. The camera with which the photograph was taken now resides in the Smithsonian Institute's National Library of American History. Wow. In November 1928, the courts found that the insurance policies were indeed obtained fraudulently, and therefore the insurance companies had no obligation to pay on them. The lawyers representing Ruth's family asked for the right to appeal without printed records due to the family being destitute and unable to sell the Snyder family home as a result of the notoriety of the case. In May of 1930, the appeal was denied and the court ruling of fraud was upheld. Good. If this story seems a bit familiar, this isn't a big surprise. This case was the basis for a book called Double Indemnity by James M. Cain. It was published in 1936 and it was made into a movie in 1944 starring Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler. It's also been the inspiration for several other books, plays, and movies over the past century. What happened to Lorraine, truly the surviving victim of this case, is at best murky. There isn't anything definitive about her life much beyond the court cases that I could find, other than a very few brief and vague references, which appear to be more gossip than fact. I hope that Lorraine was able to move past the tragedy that her mother rained down upon her life, and that Lorraine passed away an old woman with a wonderful, full life with a family that adored her, filled with as much love and peace as possible. That was crazy. Yeah, wasn't it? crazy shit. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Very well done, though. Thank you. Very, very well done. It was... There's so much that's like... When you go through and you start researching it, it's like... Because of the tabloids and, and everything... Like, you don't know how much of what you're finding right. is fact. And how much of it was made up by Judd. And how much of it was made up by Ruth. And, right. and so I just had to take all these sources that I could find... And try to piece it together and, and figure out what made the most sense. Right. Wow. Yeah. Very, very well done. That was great. Yeah. It was an interesting story to research. All right. Before we leave, do you have a final thought for us today? Of course I have a final thought. Before we fine people? Yes. Yes. Of course I do, Mary. Well, good. Our final thought for today. Don't lie, cheat, steal. Never let the things you want make you forget the things that you have. Nice. Have a great week, guys. We love you. Bye. We sincerely thank each and every one of you who stopped by and spent a short portion of your day with us. We hope you enjoyed the story today. If you have any suggestions, ideas, comments, or corrections, you can find us on Facebook at Murder Mischief and Moscato or at mischiefmoscato at gmail.com, or on Twitter at Murder Moscato. Please feel free to rate and review. This helps us to do a better job and helps others to find us. This podcast is edited and produced by Mary Swartz, and each of us does our own research and writes our own stories.